0: Hi and welcome to ONS Energy Talks. My name is Inge-Johanna Stenberg and I work with communications at ONS, one of the world's leading energy meeting places. In the months following the ONS conference, we will share some of the highlights, insightful conversations and keynotes. This episode is a conversation led by Halima Croft, the managing director and global head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. She's interviewing Dr. Fadi Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, and Anne Mettler, vice president of Breakthrough Energy Europe. You will hear some references to other speakers in this recording. Among others, Senia Wickett, who was the main moderator for the opening session at ONS, and her interview with Elon Musk. You can hear more from that session and others by subscribing to ONS Energy Talks and our newsletter and social media. And while you do that, here is the conversation between Halima Croft, Fadi Birol, and Anne Metler.
1: And so, I want to ask both of you as we look out to winter and we look to shortages, you know, economic dislocation, you know, potentially choices between heating and eating. What steps are governments taking to address this crisis? Are they sufficient? And what is the risk that? we lose trust between citizens and their governments, between nations, in terms of the response to this coming crisis.
2: Thank you, uh, Helima. And uh, first of all, since we talked since last March, last March, uh, first of March, we said winter is coming. It will be a difficult winter, especially for Europe, but for the rest of the world. We are seeing it, uh, we are going to see uh, high energy prices, maybe a recession and huge impact on the European economy and the uh, social life. I would like to however mention three points uh, here. One of them is a Europe, European values, European Union is based on the understanding of solidarity. Countries uh, working together, students working together And I only hope that the countries of uh, Europe come together and push this crisis back altogether, maybe suffer together and uh, get out of uh, winter together. This winter will be a test for the European solidarity. Mm. If Europe doesn't get the good marks from this uh, uh, winter, from this test, I believe the implications of failing may well be beyond the energy sector. This is the first point I want to mention. The second thing is what also worries me even more. We talk about Europe, but the biggest impact of the current energy crisis felt in the developing nations. Uh, And this is uh, going to have strong impacts on the economy and the social life there. And more importantly, I hope that the citizens of the developing nations and the governments will understand the causes of this crisis well and not misinterpret this. It is the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the main driver of this, but I hope this will be read well and the, uh, the uh, developing nations and the Western world, there will not be a growing uh, gap there. This is my second word. Third and the final. Yes, I have been saying since last March, winter is coming, winter is coming, and winter is really coming. But I wanted to assure you that after winter, spring will come. Spring will come with a lot of clean energy, lots of push for the renewables, energy efficiency, electric cars, hydrogen, and others. Many governments learn their lessons now, and putting money, as I said, the United States, Canada, Uh, European countries, Japan, India, Indonesia, China, and uh, this will be a turning point uh, for our way uh, to spring from winter. Just three points.
1: And your thoughts on Mm -hmm. the policy response? Are we ready? And are you confident (laughs) that we are going to get to a, a happier spring? So I don't want to speculate exactly on how this will play out. Um, however,
3: what I will say is that energy is only one of the crises huh? because we also have obviously a massive security crisis. We will have um, an economic crisis uh, because of food shortages, potentially um, a migration crisis. So the point is we're talking about a very sort of a volatile um, a scenario going forward. And it was actually in my previous job when I often said we actually live sort of in, in the age of impunity. Uh, and it, it's very difficult to prepare um, um, uh, for, for, you know, in this age for what is to come. Um, so while it's natural that you hope for the worst, I would say it becomes a matter of critical importance that we are prepared for the worst. And this is a tall order. So, because what I've seen is it is absolutely corrosive to democracy if we are not prepared, if we just stumble sort of from one uh, crisis uh, to the next. So yes, we need to manage this crisis, we need to be honest, I just spoke about it, we need to tell people this will be a tough winter, potentially not just this winter, but also following winters but what is so important is we need to now prepare for the future what is the future we, you know we want to live in and and this is what we need to talk about now not only the crisis but really um what are the technologies you know what what how concretely does this is this going to play out uh, this clean energy transition now and what is perhaps even an opportunity here to accelerate what would otherwise take much longer
1: so one of the big topics of this conference is going to be on the theme of investment and what is the sort of optimal investment environment that we need to meet the challenges of the energy trilemma. Xenia mentioned the report that the IEA put out last year. It garnered a lot of headlines in terms of the recommendations on not investing in oil and gas. Both of you, as you think forward, what is the optimal investment mix between conventional oil and gas renewables to meet the needs of the energy trilemma? And really importantly, How do we close the funding gap for developing nations? That was such a huge issue at COP26. How do we ensure that developing nations have the money they need to proceed with the transition?
2: I believe we have to make strong investment overall, but mainly the fault line is the investments not taking place in the developing nations. If you look at the emissions, more than 90% of the growth of the emissions will come from the uh, emerging countries, and only one-fifth of the clean energy investment is going to developing countries. There's a huge uh, gap there, and for me, as I said, this is the fault line of our fight against uh, climate change. Because we can do whatever we uh, can do in Europe, in the United States, in Japan, in the advanced economies, as long as we cannot reduce the emissions in the emerging countries, first of all, through uh, clean energy technologies for the next chapter of the energy technology, plus, it is not enough, how we are going to retire some of the coal plants in those countries which have 40, 50 years of uh, lifetime which are emitting. I'll give you one number. Even if you stop Europe now, forget the reduction of the emissions, if you stop Europe, completely, just Europe goes uh, a winter sleep for 20, 30 years, if the uh, the rest of the world uh, continues as they are in terms of their energy uh, uh, practices, the global temperature increase uh, will not change uh, uh, whatsoever. So therefore, the issue is how we are going to accelerate the clean energy investments in the uh, developing world, in terms of efficiency, in terms of renewables, uh, hydrogen, electric cars, and others, uh, how we are going to retire. This is also important. How we are going to retire, the obsolete technologies there, because uh, to build the new ones, our clean ones are not enough. How we are going to retire in order to reach our climate goals if we are at all uh, serious. And coming back to the trust issue, if the countries, the advanced economies, cannot put this, this $100 billion, which is talk, uh, together, I don't think that we get good marks from the developing uh, countries, COP26, 27, or 28, and therefore, in my view, this is a a litmus uh, test for the trust uh, from the developing countries for the advanced economies.
1: And how do you think about this litmus test for trust in developing countries? Yeah,
3: it's a good issue and very important. I remember back in the day when I worked at the European Commission, and we would spend so much money on clean energy transition, and I was like, you know, Europe is 8% of global CO2 emissions. If we were really serious about it, we should be spending this money in China, India, Indonesia, South Africa, I mean, just anywhere other than Europe, you know, if you really wanted to have an impact. So uh, we do need to really keep this in mind. I I, I completely uh, agree with what Fatih is saying. Maybe I say um, what we are trying to do about it because obviously we need this new generation of clean technologies. It's very expensive. It's very risky. It has a long you know, time until uh, the investment returns. So um, we need to really think about how do we de-risk uh, these emerging technologies. Um, we personally believe we need more blended finance, so public-private, and because I'm working for Bill Gates, uh, even philanthropic capital to really accelerate uh, and get these projects underway much faster than they otherwise would. Um, some of you may have heard Bill Gates speak about the green premium. So this is what we have to pay more for clean, um, for clean technologies. And here we really need to think through sort of the innovation cycle, because if we scale these technologies, the cost will come down. We saw that with wind and solar, but it took four decades. It takes too long. So thinking about how do we accelerate the innovation cycle will be absolutely critical.
1: Speaking of another critical issue, you know, Zenia and her conversation with Elon Musk, a lot of the conversation towards the end was on the topic of critical minerals and the components that we are going to need to reach these ambitious goals. to the IAEA has published a very sobering report on critical minerals. I'm wondering if you are optimistic about the outlook for getting these necessary resources.
2: I think there are, uh, unfortunately, some of the critical minerals are concentrated on a very few uh, number of uh, countries. And uh, if we want to see that the availability and the price of critical minerals is not a a, a challenge for the clean energy transition. We have to make sure that uh, those critical minerals, which are in fact available around the world, should be developed, should be part of the government policies in order to provide investments so that they are produced uh, around the world. Otherwise, today we have uh, Russia and gas. Tomorrow it can be Uh, this critical mineral in another country, so therefore uh, we should be very careful uh, that uh, those critical minerals, those resources are developed around the world. I see that now in the United States, Canada, uh, different parts of uh, Asia, in Europe, uh, many countries are looking now at the critical minerals availability and how they can produce them. Yes,
3: absolutely. I mean, and I think we're very grateful for the work that you have done because the overarching point is we need to exactly understand where might new dependencies um, 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 uh, be created because we cannot possibly um, replace a dependency on, on Russian fossil energy, you know, with a, with a dependency on other countries for these critical raw materials. So the first step from a public policy perspective is certainly to even understand what are we talking about and where is this located and then strategically think about how do we make bring this all together and and really bring about the systemic change that we are talking about here so evidence and really uh, preparing and foresight will be absolutely critical here
1: as you bring up the issue of sort of not repeating the mistakes that we have fallen into with this conflict what are the really lessons that we can learn from this war the weaponization of energy Both of you were very cogent in warning about the risks of a Russian invasion. I mean, Fatih, you were really out in September looking at the issue of Russian deliveries to Europe and saying it's going to be a harbinger of another conflict with Ukraine. What have we learned? What are you afraid that we haven't learned? And what are you, as you look out to sort of future conflicts, future issues, what gives you the greatest source of concern?
2: First of all, Helima, what I want, what I would like to have after this war is hopefully one day over, everything <coughs> comes down, some of the key European governments sit back and make a self-critic of their previous energy policies. Mm-hmm. They owe this to us because we warned them, we warned them mm-hmm. to be reliant on one single country that much was a mistake to exclude some of the energy technologies and focus only one or two was a mistake. There are many lessons to be drawn from this, but if I can draw one lesson, diversification is very important. Diversification of the resources, diversification of technologies, and we should not forget that the energy security is not an old-fashioned concept. It will be with us for uh, many years, as you rightly mentioned. Uh, it can be in the case of uh, today, uh, oil and gas, it can be under critical uh, minerals, and we shouldn't forget it. But diversification is the magic word for me here, and some European countries forget it, and they owe us a self-critic of the uh, uh, previous uh, energy policies.
3: Yes, I completely agree. I used to be the chair of the interinstitutional process on strategic foresight at the European level, and as such, I can confirm that... Um, Several countries had been warned um, that really, really dangerous um, dependencies uh, were created at a time when Russia was uh, ostensibly turning more autocratic. So uh, no one can say we didn't know. Uh, So, I mean, having foresight, having people who sort of look on the horizon, you know, what are we worried about, and then actually bring that into the policy arena will be critical. I spoke yesterday about a good example because, we, uh, yes, we need to go back and look at what went wrong, but for instance, Lithuania was an early victim of um, the weaponization of uh, energy and already in 2012 um, um, initiated the National Energy Independence Strategy. So when the war started, Lithuania was able to unilaterally cut off uh, Russian energy. So. I think this is maybe something to learn, but it took a decade. So that's what I said earlier about if you can't do this during the good times, now we have to do it during the bad times and
1: much faster than in a decade. So bringing this session to a close, I mean, so much of it has been on the sort of winter scenario. I want to get back to the optimism. And, you know, Anne, I thought your comments about COVID and the response to COVID and the technology that came from that, the sort of warp speed, what are you looking to as your greatest source of optimism? Well,
3: this was, uh, it's actually interesting because uh, when, when the crisis hit, I actually, I know health is different uh, from energy. However, I remember back in the day, people said, oh, a new vaccine, it'll take four or five years. Then we managed it in under 12 months. Huh? And, and we created an entirely new uh, uh, technology, the mRNA technology. So the point is, at a minimum, it can give us inspiration. Huh? And uh, so we looked into um, Operation Warp Speed, which was modeled after the Manhattan Project, the Apollo Project. And it had sort of certain principles. I won't go into detail, but the bottom line is it was public-private partnership. And anything that stood in the way was essentially shoved aside to make it happen. And I think at a minimum, and especially when I hear about the permitting issues, maybe it can give some inspiration for energy, where it's not so much maybe about new technologies, but really how do you bring the system together and make things happen much faster than they
1: otherwise would. Fatih, how do we make things happen much faster?
2: Uh, it is uh, going to happen, and I can tell you that this crisis will accelerate this. this is the, mm. For the first time, I am seeing the energy security yeah. And the climate commitments and the national interest, economic interest are coming together, and this is a very powerful combination. And I think the, the, what uh, uh, Russia did will only accelerate this, and many of the clean energy technologies will get a big boost from electric cars, I mean, the IRA, the In- Inflation Reduction Act, according to our uh, analysis, will increase uh, the share of electric cars sales by factor of eight in the United States. In Europe, already very strong, 15% of all the cars sales are electric cars. In China, 25%. If you put all of them together, they are 60% of the global uh, car market. And this is going to be very powerful electric cars, renewables, efficiency, hydrogen, and I am uh, really, really hopeful, even uh, before we enter the winter.
1: Thank you so much. Thank Thank you.
0: You just heard Halima Croft, Fatty Birol, and Ann Mettler in conversation at the ONS opening ceremony 29th of August 2022. Stay tuned and subscribe to ONS Energy Talks, where you find your podcasts to hear more highlights from ONS in the months to come.